Hello and welcome to a new episode of Inequality Talks, the podcast from volunteers at Mellon Folklick Samarik Aarhus, where we interview experts in a field or topic related to inequality. Today, I will be talking to Dr. Clayton Marcia da Silva from Brazil about soy pre-production in his country and the effects that it has on farmers, the indigenous rainforest and more. This episode is made part of Our Food, Our Future initiative. Our Food, Our Future is a co-funded project by the European Commission and is an international coalition of civil society organizations working towards changing the global food system to be sustainable and socially just. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Clayton to the show. Hello, Dr. Clayton. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Very welcome. I'm excited to speak to you. Uh, yeah, so I'll start by asking, uh, yeah, who are you? What is your expertise? Okay, I'm a historian. I'm currently uh, an associate professor of history, uh, environmental history and history of sciences at the Federal University of Southern Frontier uh, in Chapecó, state of Santa Catarina, uh, Brazil, of course. And I've been studying uh, these rural uh, questions uh, since 2002 when I was doing my MA so I was very interested about the uh, about this uh, rural world uh, resisting uh, in, uh, in facing this industrialized world we are living in so it it is bringing some uh, good questions uh, from 20 years <laughs> from now. <laughs> cool. Um, and like, what what did you, what's been your journey from starting your master's and starting to look into this kind of, uh, this kind of research about communities fighting back against this industrial machine? Uh, how did you get from where you started to, to what you know now? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 21 years old when I started my MA and we were living a very uh, interesting uh, in, uh, intellectual environment here in Brazil uh, tackling questions of cultural history because uh, it was a, a, a very relevant topic for that moment but everybody was, while everybody was interested in the urbanization and the industrial Brazil and industrial Latin America, I, I became very interested about the, the relationship uh, between culture and dictatorship. Uh, because we in Brazil had a strong dictatorship from 1964 to 1985 and we often discuss the, the resistance uh, against the, that dictatorship uh, from the perspective of the urbanized world, students, uh, working class, um, except for the uh, rural guerrilla uh, in the Araguaia region, for example, in the Amazonia in 1970s, early 1970s. So I was very interested uh, in how the dictatorship uh, was very interested in shaping, in molding new young uh, rural laborers 
for uh, 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 I would say skilled labors to drive uh, new machinery, new tractors, new harvesters, and of course, in the uh, trail of the Green Revolution, the uh, in the Cold War, of course, young people uh, was the focus of these great programs. So as the United States developed in the early ninth, uh, early 20th century, the program uh, called For Age, Age, uh, For Age, uh, Health, uh, Head, Hands, and something else with Age. <laughs> uh, they explored this program in order to. Uh, to uh, modernize uh, the, the rural uh, villages. And it was exported after the World War II in the con historical context of the, uh, the Cold War to Latin America. So I was dealing with this uh, US uh, influence on Brazilian agriculture and this kind of modernization and my PhD was in history of sciences uh, focus on how it it all started uh, and how these uh, collaborations these agricultural uh, cooperation started in Brazil it, it was between the Nelson Rockefeller the multi-millionaire and uh, oil mogul <laughs> uh, from the United States and how uh, one of its uh, one of his one of his uh, associations a philanthropic one introduced this kind of work uh, we call extension service uh, it was very important to understand how the Brazilian agricultural uh, modernization we see today is very connected to this pattern of modernization and tradition at the same time. It's a very hybrid concept because you understand the modern agriculture is intensive while the traditional one is extensive it means the forest slash and burn uh, but now we have both <laughs> working together in brazil we uh, often destroy all soils and at the same because you have intensive uh, agriculture uh, at the same time you destroy <laughs> forests uh, so it's extensive and this was part of my uh, PhD thesis I will be publishing next year at the White Horse Press uh, and I will be glad to talk about that if you want to uh, in the near future and when uh, 
when I was doing a postdoc at the Rachel Carson Center in 2017, everybody was very interested about soybean in Brazil. So I realized, why not? <laughs> Sorry, uh, would you ask me something? Sorry. No, I was, I was just going to say that it sounds like you've tried to create a link to the current farming practices that you can see in Brazil to the historical and cultural origins of where they come from, whilst including factors like uh, post-imperialism, I would call it, with the USA influencing various policy. Also, uh, to, to my knowledge, the USA had a large influence on the dictatorship that was in Brazil. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, which is classic USA policy in South America around that time. Still, some would argue now as well. Um, and it, it sounds like you've gone into to more detail than I can even imagine to explain how the current farming practices in Brazil have led to the, the method of soybean production. Um, and that kind of leads me on to what my next question would be. And that would be, what is the current state of soybean production in brazil so how based on this knowledge you've got of the history of the of the farming practices and that combination of the intensive and the extensive how does that how does that show itself what is the practicality then of of soybean production in brazil uh it's very diverse uh, you have a lot of different practices but uh if you for example have uh some, I would say, uh, a good number of uh, farmers producing organic soybean in Brazil uh, in the total amount, amount uh, it will be only 5%, for example. Wow. Uh, so uh, we have, uh, we often uh, explain that we have a Germany inside Brazil made of soybean because we have the whole territory of Germany uh, comparing uh, just producing soybeans here so the land mass the land size is the same size as Germany yeah. just producing soybeans in Brazil that is insane as a European that is insane that is insane. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so it means that uh, uh, you have a lot of different uh, farmers, different uh, cooperatives, you have different uh, factories. But uh, if you have just a couple of these king of soybeans producing in the very uh, GMO uh, and I would say uh, pesticide driven this kind of uh, production uh, it will be more than 10-15% of the total amount of the, the soybean produced in Brazil so uh, it's connected to the of course the global market but also to the a, a very uh, uh, important concept in Brazil in Latin America that is let's let's do it as fast as we can because think 
things will change in the future and we are not sure if we can explore exploit more these these lands and this kind of labor uh so but right so to, to so that sounds like uh and correct me if i'm wrong that sounds like they're trying to take advantage of it whilst they still can yeah. to try and squeeze every last piece of value regardless of the consequences just so with the if motivation you have some of, consequences yeah. you just move from state to another state or from brazil to another country if you have for example uh environmental uh legislation and better legislation and control over so uh the uh, I, I have been discussing that we develop a, a kind of uh, agricultural model uh, in Brazil, uh, this hybrid model. To, uh, it's not only intensive and extensive, but it's very, uh, I would say, racial, a very uh, racial uh, model uh, who, uh, that we are exporting to another countries. Uh, as you can hear in Europe, Brazil is the breadbasket of the world and whatever, and this kind of propaganda. Uh, but uh, these big far farms are owned and driven by white farmers. Um, because uh, these historical components uh, always uh, gave some privileges for white uh, European descendants who settled in Brazil, uh, especially here in the south uh, in late 19, 19th century and early 20th century. So, so that still exists, that racial difference in Brazil still exists as a culture, and you can see that in soybean production as well, that you have the white farmers who have been given certain advantages or, yeah, some kind of benefit in, in comparison to the non-white farmers. Yeah, uh, you can see, uh, uh, you can see uh, indigenous uh, <laughs> and blacks and uh, I'd say uh, as we say here, caboclos and caipiras, the mixed uh, uh, populations uh, in privilege and in this kind of uh, business. So we are exporting because uh, these guys, these big farmers, they are so rich, so wealthy. They are uh, expanding their business to the United States and but also to africa for example uh, part of the uh, deforestation promoted at the nakala corridor in mozambique is being driven by brazilian farmers so uh, following this uh, model of uh, extensive intensive uh, uh, with uh, a lot of capital and pesticides and uh, energy they need to, to, to have some dams, uh, hydroelectrics and this industrial agriculture uh, and some, some people is uh, 
saying that uh, we are, of course, uh, destroying so much these biological life zones like the Cerrados and Amazonia and Pantanal at the wetlands. Uh, we had a very uh, important fire burnings uh, two years ago. Uh, so it, it's leading these biological life zones to extinction. So we, yeah, we need to factor, yeah. yeah we need to forget the idea of future yeah let's uh, fix it in the future because we have technology enough and some archaeologists uh, are are now arguing that there will be no future because uh, all the ecology of the cerrados for example uh, is is changing and the water system is uh, damaged and so we uh, still don't know what will be the real consequences of these projects uh, of agriculture modernization in the future. It sounds like they're not going to be good consequences in my opinion like <laughs> probably, probably good for uh, Cargill, for Tyson's and others. That they will have a lot of fun about it. And <laughs> probably the, the, uh, there are lots of uh, people who will benefit. Uh, not exactly uh, the indigenous and the pe peasantry and those ones. Uh, but of course, uh, the, uh, in my, my studies, I often write uh, with my colleague Claudio Di Maio. The, uh, Claudio Di Maio is uh, working at the Rachel Carson Center at the uh, uh, Maximilian, Lud, Lud, uh, sorry, Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. So we've, we are writing about uh, these great narratives about the soybean, soy farming. And of course, there's the positive one where you, you all in the world will be benefit because we have more vegetable protein and it brings a lot of uh, uh, animal food and so now we have uh, pig meat uh, from China and feeding uh, th that's the green revolution ideology let's feed the world uh, and facing them on the contrary we uh, in contrast we have the declensionist narrative which is uh, saying that everybody uh, is doing something wrong and we will have a kind of apocalypse in the near future uh, so we are trying to understand how complex is this process and we are uh, we published an article uh, last year called the uh, towards the soya scene it's like the instead of Anthropocene, <laughs> we are living the global south, a uh, real soya scene, uh, where the 
the economic, the cultural, the environmental relations are uh, are driven by soybeans, and it. And now we are planning. A, we are editing a book for the next year on the age of soybeans. Uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, saw, Sorry. Yeah. No, no, go on. I was just going to say I saw that you were working on that project, and it sounds it sounds really interesting. And for me, when when we talk about this, and when you you outline the the dynamic of soy production in Brazil, the the main thing that comes to me is that for these people to win, you say these big co corporations, um, for these people to win, and for even Brazilian farms to take over forest in Mozambique there are people losing it's not that there is just winners it, it, there are a lot of losers and I, I i i quite often think in these kind of scenarios where is 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 there in brazil a big pushback so for the bigger farmers to expand right they have to take land off other people or they have to push people out or i don't know buy people out or however they do it in brazil but this is what i assume at least um Mm -hmm. and and also the the vulnerability of the soybean production in brazil uh like you were saying the the water system has changed the the bio yeah how would you say that the 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 biological structure that allows soybean production is is vulnerable and also with climate change with i read an article recently which said that uh soy is very very vulnerable to climate change so these there's this this ideology of the green revolution that you were talking about, which sounds positive and feeding the world, but you're doing that with such clear consequences of kicking people out. And also, this uh, sorry, this is quite a convoluted thought. I hope you're following. Um, but yeah, there, there are winners and there are losers, and there are also the future generations which are going to be huge losers. So how? Uh, how is there not a huge pushback to this development of industrial farming? Well, th th this is a very interesting and very complex uh, topic, so I will bring you some examples and if I forget something you can ask me again. Uh, for example, uh, when we think about good and evil narratives, uh, we forget these intra-narratives and intra-experience which are not uh, exactly uh, settled in, the, in both uh, good or bad narratives. For example, uh, here in Brazil, uh, in South Brazil, uh, people use uh, some small farmers, they used to raise pigs uh, and provide these pigs to the slaughterhouses and then export this uh, pig meat. Okay, uh, it's cold here in South Brazil. So in July, when you are enjoying your summer, here we have some, uh, some temperatures uh, like minus 4, minus 5, minus 8. So it's very cold and these farms, they had to wake up early, so early in the morning to clean the pig uh, spaces and uh, feed the pigs. And it's very, uh, uh, and th this is not the, uh, 
very industrial uh, way because they suffer a lot. They they got cold, they got flu, and and after five months raising a pig, they got five dollars of profit. So little. Whoa. Each pig. So when uh, the soybean market is growing, these guys is <laughs> they they are they are very happy in uh, live uh, pig farming in order to uh, to go to dive into the soybean market because uh, for, uh, I have one, a very interesting example one student told me uh, in a town very close down here to Chapecó uh, there's a guy who has a, a very small farm and he's not a farmer he lives in the city and he builds houses every day he works building and fixing houses and uh, one or two days he goes to his small farm to sit and to cultivate soybeans and come back to the uh, city to, to the town so it's something like uh, he has a job and he's now cultivating soybeans just uh, just for more profit, just because it's profitable. And he uh, and as it's very uh, industrialized in com comparing to the pig farming, uh, he can have some money uh, and not su suffering a lot as the small farmers who are raising pigs and chickens for slaughterhouses so it means uh, uh, this, is a, this is a very uh, complex question uh, and people are very uh, are looking to the scenarios international scenarios looking for prof profit and sometimes they uh, they don't have any investment on organic or sustainable farming they don't have any uh, loans for that kind of things because you know uh, this is the scenario and, and as it is very profitable let's try to take advantage of everything as fast as we can so that's the the topic so well uh, it's aren't, aren't people shouting think about the climate aren't people shouting think about the future you know the, this this mentality of let's do everything as fast as we can there are very obvious logical consequences to that especially nowadays when people are so aware with the ipcc reports that have come out with you know the cop26 it's really it, at least maybe it's a very Eurocentric idea and I can fall into that trap sometimes because being, well, Brexit makes me less European than I was a few years ago, but I still consider myself European. Um, but 
like my idea is that the world community is becoming more aware of the consequences of actions that are short terministic like let's make the most of soybean production mm-hmm. all of it now and then fuck the future <laughs> basically but maybe it's i don't know maybe i'm simplifying it too much no no uh, uh, this is very uh interesting but uh uh let's say four years ago yeah four years ago i I was watching a very interesting uh movie uh, made in brazil but it was made by directed by a german director Uh, it's called agrocalypsis apocalypsis agro agro business (laughs) yeah And uh, during that uh, that movie, uh, that 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 is a very interesting but sad part. That, uh, for example, they in Mato Grosso, in the state of Mato Grosso, they have a very big farm, and in the middle of that big farm, there's an indigenous reservation. So what was the big farmer's strategy to push these indigenous uh, uh, out of their own lands? Uh, It was to close the roads so the indigenous were very isolated so they had no uh, food. They, these indigenous, uh, the, the movie shows, they were eating rats, rats, mouses, because they have no space enough to cultivate their lands. They have no roads. And after that movie, uh, a German a uh, woman asked me, uh, how can you in Latin America think, uh, do it? How can a f- big farmer can do it? You are uh, hurting a lot of people because you are just wanting to cultivate soybean. And of course, I, I, I told her, uh, I understand why that big farm is doing that, even though I strongly disagree. But this is uh, the cultural world uh, we live, uh, which is very different from the European progressive uh, environmentalist uh, thought and the producers in South America. This is uh, a long way different. Uh, because um, first there's the the racial question Uh, for these big farmers who are white farmers uh, the indigenous are not considered at the bottom of the question humans so yeah it's it's really that kind of explicit like it's yeah it's not they they don't they they don't don't, don't say this but they think this and they show it through various actions <laughs> such as yeah. kicking wow that is horrible to hear 
but yeah okay very terrible and of course this is also this is just the the first part of the question uh moreover they are uh they say that brazil is big because it's a great nation because we uh cultivate the land there's a a, a very uh specific uh kind of thought that claims that land is here to be cultivated so you need to bring down the forest uh, you you need to make all this uh, not organized nature in a very planified monoculture the idea of re re rational enlightened uh, uh, technological hubris words <laughs> but at the same time they are not enlightened in terms of social justice for example <laughs> so uh, I, i'm trying to to show you how we are having two very different words connected through soybeans but the, from from what you're talking about it sounds like it's a dominant ideology within brazil and it's kind of linked to a national feeling or a national right that it is it is our right to to cultivate the land in not necessarily monoculture practice but to sort of yeah not industrialize but humanize the land to to make it our own instead of protecting it but there must be strong rejections strong alternative ideologies that try to push that um dominant ideology out it's quite but maybe i'm still being very eurocentric and obviously i can't separate the two but i i have a feeling at least that there would be quite like a large part of the population the people who are not benefiting from the land and the people who for example the indigenous who aren't the the white uh, brazilians or the the lower racial classes if you will that they would think you know fuck this <laughs> like what like you're just yeah maybe not from an environmentalist perspective but even from an economic perspective that well uh sure uh, we are a very big country and we have a lot of different uh, people thinking about different conceptions of agriculture uh the universities uh are very committed to think alternatives of uh, agricultural production we have the social movements we have uh, isolated farms who are thinking by their themselves how to to bring uh, <clears throat> uh, sustainable management uh, so uh, uh, my narrative about this uh, endangered country uh, an endangered continent which is uh, South America and Latin America uh, is more exactly uh, showing you what the positive narrative uh, don't bring it to you because you know uh, European Union is very needy for for uh, vegetable protein 
um, you you can uh, for for some governments it it means that they they will have st stability to to create democracy if they have grains and um, food enough to feed their populations uh, it's a biopolitical question uh, on the other hand uh, we have a lot of uh, people thinking about these these alternative projects uh, so soybean is so profitable that just a few people are thinking about uh, alternative projects in soybeans why uh, profitable probably uh, because uh, you have here in brazil there's a very important study uh, made by one of my colleagues at the Rachel Carson Center, Claire Lagier. Uh, she wrote about the landless peasant movement, the MST here in Brazil, which is a very grassroots movement, very um, 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 real fan of these guys. Um, but in terms of, so, uh, they, they go, <laughs> Uh, struggle against the latifundia and the big farmers but uh, regarding the soybean topic specific one they are not committed to organic non-gmo and non-pesticide because um, another study uh, in Argentina shows that some farmers from uh, Via Campesina and this uh, international uh, peasantry movements, they are committed to uh, organic soybean, but within that big plantation, they have a conventional soybean plantation uh, based on pesticide GMO, because they need to uh, sell this uh, production uh, in order to, uh, to provide their children's ch children to study abroad, for example. They need money. Yeah. So it, it, it's very controversial uh, and we can't blame about that. Uh, some, some people are doing uh, what they can do about that but uh, what is the the problem uh, in my opinion is the it's not the state it's not the the farmers it's not exactly the the corporations it's the connection between uh, these uh, different actors because the state uh, is having a lot of fun uh, having uh, reais in dollars, the Brazilian money is called real. So if you produce in reais and you uh, exchange in dollars, you have a lot of profit. So the state is very comfortable about that situation. 
and so after that the state can bring some part of this money a small part uh, to and try to provide some uh, some natural uh, or environmental programs and this kind of stuff and so uh, at the same time uh, glyphosate and uh, the, these uh, pesticides which are prohibited in European Union uh, are there are lots of open doors here in South America because it's very profitable and these uh, Syngenta and these uh, corporations they put a lot of money into the hands of politicians to make lobbies and to approve uh, uh, to regulate this kind of uh, uh, this kind of pesticide free country here in Brazil for example so it's a very it's very complex but uh, uh, and of course we can bring a lot of alternative projects and programs but at this point the state and the, the corporations and the big farmers they are not interested in quit because uh, let's think about a, a very important data because uh, European Union uh, is uh, buying a lot of Brazilian soybeans, but it means only 4%. 4% of the, the exports. Yeah, export. China, on the other hand, is buying 80 80% of the Brazilian soybeans to raise wow. pigs and probably they pig, their pigs will feed not only Chinese population but also export it to European Union so we have a very interesting but not uh, a healthy uh, food chain starting sometimes from indigenous lands and going to China and this protein becomes pig meat and now you are having it in Norway uh, or Denmark for example at the same time uh, we were talking about uh, uh, imperialism in the United States but also I would say in Denmark we, you have uh, you are in Denmark cultivating about 20% of your size territorial uh, size of the Denmark territory in Argentina so it means that uh, Argentina is committed to sell to exchange uh, part of the soybean production with Denmark in a territory which is 20% of the Denmark territory so it means colonialism in another way yeah. it's the yeah, same thing that uh, that Japan and Brazil are doing in uh, Mozambique 
So Japan is also part of the the destruction of the the Japan ha has no lands enough to cultivate soybeans in in this proportion. No, and I think it's a very prescient point that you're making about the link between uh, a country like Denmark and the demand of the meat industry in Denmark leading to the size of 20% of Denmark being dedicated to soybean production in Argentina. And I think that's so important to remember living in a country like Denmark where you don't see the real impact of your food or the hidden costs of your food it's bizarre thinking that i could have eaten something i don't eat too much meat that sounds like i'm showing off on the podcast um but it, it sounds bizarre, like bizarre that you can have a, a hamburger and it could have been raised on beans from soybeans from argentina or brazil then shipped to china and then brought back to denmark as a finished product that is absurd that is considering the the consequences of these actions we've got in the face of the biodiversity crisis the the food crisis the climate crisis it's uh it's it's not happy uh happy thoughts i'm having having <laughs> no you seem very calm which is making me feel a bit calmer i guess seeing as you've got all this knowledge and still still are calm so let me put some more alcohol in this burning fire. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Please some, do. <laughs> some months ago, uh, here in, in this state uh, of Rio Grande do Sul, it, uh, it's very close from here, uh, some, some, the Federal Department of Policy in Brazil, they they realized that some people were taking uh, soybeans uh, for cultivating, which has a lot of poison, pesticides. They were, these guys, they were washing these, uh, these seeds and then exchanging and selling these uh, seeds for the international market as uh, seeds for human consumption. Jesus. Uh, not enough. <laughs> I will bring another one. Keep uh, going. Keep going. I'm, I'm in the zone. <laughs> Twenty-eight indigenous here in the state of Rio Grande do Sul. Uh, of course, uh, I, I'm not. I'm wrong. Uh, Twenty-eight families. They uh, were uh, they were uh, out of the indigenous land because there was a a fight between two groups inside the the indigenous land. Uh, part of the group was uh, had the support of big farmers to cultivate soybean, rice, and beans. And the other part was very upset about this, uh, this kind of uh, exchange, exchange <laughs> uh, between part of the indigenous and part of the farmers, and of course destroying the, the, their lands. And they had 
a lot of problems and and some of these big farmers supporters got some guns uh, and gave some shots in the aldea and in the indigenous lands and expropriating 28 families from their lands uh, so the Brazilian justice representatives said that all the soybeans you are consuming in Europe have some uh, indigenous children's blood inside. It's a metaphor, but it's very strong. And of course, we have a lot of problems in every food chain in any part of the world. But soybean is bringing, uh, is making it, it, these problems more radical, stronger and stronger. And it seems like quite a, maybe it's not an extreme example, but it's the most extreme example of a horrendous food system that is incredibly important to international trade and international food consumption. It's, yeah, it's the worst one I've heard so far. And I'm sure you've got more examples, and I think I'm prepared to to listen to a a couple more because because you you we we haven't talked about it yet, but part of the observatory uh, project maybe I'm not explaining it well was to to label this. It's kind of positive as well. It feels like a nice segue into maybe some hopeful ish things. Um, but you you were trying to have uh, labeled food with with no child labor, and this aspect of child labor is still a bit vague to me so if you'd like to explain and expand on yeah, yeah what what the child labor situation is in soybean production in brazil yeah uh, so, uh when i got back from germany from my postdoc uh i met one of my colleagues uh, antonio inacio andreoli who uh, is the our former vice dean here at the UFFS and he had this idea of uh, creating a social environmental observatory of the soybean cultivation in the southern county Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay and Uruguay uh, which have a very similar situation and after some, uh, some years uh, bringing this idea uh, now in, in May next month we will uh, celebrate the inauguration of this observatory uh, it's an interdisciplinary observatory uh, having uh, natural scientists uh, having uh, making and providing some data on uh, pesticides on cancer on healthy issues and at the same time providing us this data in order for uh, historians and social scientists writing reports and one of the ideas we have uh, is on a near future to develop this child labor free uh, label uh, you know, not only child uh, child labor free, 
but uh, indigenous and indigenous uh, uh, lands uh, free label <laughs> the kind of uh, uh, your soybean is not cultivated in, and is, is not expropriating indigenous and pop uh, traditional populations from their lands so uh, we would like to explore a lot of these uh, these problems here pesticide free and, and of course the, this kind of uh, different problems and provide a kind of uh, a kind of uh, certification uh, for small farmers, for organic farmers, for those who are interested in alternative processes of uh, soybean cultivation. Because, for example, China uh, is expecting, intending to track uh, every grain of soybean uh, bought from Brazil uh, next year next year they in up to three years they uh, expect to track a hundred percent of their uh, importations of soybean so we need to provide these uh, these stakeholders uh, what they need to, in order to understand that there are some alternative process in this uh, in these lands it's not easy first because we are historians <laughs> and historians are not exactly uh, uh, we don't know how to manage things <laughs> but we are trying we are we are having a lot of uh, partners and as part of uh, some projects uh, here approved by uh, by our group we are calling this group as the soya scene group uh, trying to provide a, 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 this kind of discussion and how soybeans are molding relations here and we expect of course uh, uh, in partnership with your project we can exchange information and you can bring us uh, some future partners from every part of the world who would be interested in discussing these kind of things yeah i think uh, the our food our future initiative would be very interested in collaboration because it's so important for for the food culture in Europe to understand what supports a lot of that food culture. And I think being a civil society organization in 14 different countries, all of whom have, uh, sorry, a coalition of, of various civilized, civil society organizations um, who all have an interest in a just food system, I think a transparent labeling system would be amazing i do i i am very curious to see how that how that works in practice considering the what i assume to be huge fight back from the large farmers the large agro chemical industry 
basically just in industrial food system um and how you would implement it how you would what the logistics are so you can do all this research about what is um not necessarily just sustainable but also ethical in its production and you can create a label for this but then how do you uh, how do you um legitimize this label what's have you got a plan of action for for that yeah, we are uh, developing some uh, talks to the social movements the grassroots movements uh, in part we have some associations of uh, rural workers we are uh, some agricultural associations interested uh, I have been trying to convince some uh, friends from the MST uh, but uh, we are very flexible at this point because uh, in order, of course, uh, think with me, uh, it's very easy for me to talk about you need to uh, change your uh, agricultural practice and your uh, and the way you uh, collaborate with the food of your family. It's very easy for me. But uh, they, uh, they, they need to convince themselves about this, uh, about this bad, uh, I would say, very bad uh, agricultural practice uh, surrounding the soybean chain. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Brian Lander, uh, from the... Uh, Brown University uh, he has said uh, the problem is not soybean the problem is the humans managing the soybeans this is the problem he told something quite similar but uh, we need to think about this kind of question because uh, soybean it's very uh, important it brings uh, about 50% uh, of protein in the grain so we can try of course uh, to develop more sustainable practices and more uh, humanistic relations uh, humanistic and non-humanistic relations because we need to understand the cycles of nature and the soils how it works and how it can uh, how the soils can be fed with this this monocultures or or not and we need to think about ecology in general uh, so after all we can try to convince uh, some partners to join the, the project and then to make it uh, more to legitimize this process but uh, uh, this is the Brazilian way it's very flexible and it's very open for your contributions 
Here in Europe, we need rigidity. We need full-fledged plans. And we don't necessarily follow them, but we need that plan. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the problem of different cultures because uh, uh, people here, they, they need to understand that this is not very pragmatic. It's more, uh, of course, if you offer some prof profit, it could be very pragmatic. But uh, on this uh, kind of progressive, uh, progressive farming, uh, you need to convince people that this could be profitable in a broader sense. Not only in terms of money, but also for social environment and healthy. Some, some would say they're bigger motivations that should be obvious and uh, no matter where you're from in the world are uh, still very obvious i would hope i'd hope that even in a, a different culture the idea of profit above all is still quite strange uh, I, I would my image of the world is that europe is more susceptible to that belief than than other parts but maybe that's a misconception that i have being a European. <laughs> because part of the Europeans are here uh, as part of the Singenta, selling some pesticides for Latin America. <laughs> uh, and that's the, the, the topic, that's the main point. Uh, these uh, connections between uh, Europe, United States, China, and the global south uh, of course if we could change something regarding to the soybean we could bring more uh, democratic situations between the global north and the global south so this is very it's biopolitical in many senses from the grain to the big policies around us. But uh, of course, there are a lot of uh, Europeans who are here uh, bringing uh, good alternatives and good projects, trying to, to understand how Latin Americans are, uh, can uh, get out of these problematic and endangered situations. Sounds a bit white savory, but maybe, maybe not. Sounds a bit like we kind of got you into this mess by bringing our ideologies and now we're kind of get it out of trying to get you out of this mess, even though we still haven't sorted it out ourselves at home. But then, then maybe that's my inner cynic coming out. So that's uh In terms of ideologies, uh, every country has a lot of... <laughs> Uh, and always exchanging. Uh, we often have a lot of uh, scholars thinking in new possibilities on post-development. And uh, now we are focused on these traditional populations, way of life, and how we can learn from them uh, in terms of uh, understanding 
the environment as a as a as our house as Gaia is uh, uh, having more destructive uh, uh, hand, handling more uh, more uh, this fragile ecosystems in a sustainable way so sometimes we need to exchange we we did this kind of uh, development systems they are not for everybody in every part of the world they they can work in some villages and regional systems uh, but our struggle is to understand how we are in a very endangered world, living a war and living the authoritarian, uh, very authoritarian governments uh, flourishing everywhere. And my question is how soybean flourishes better in authoritarian systems. Uh, so it's a metaphor because if you connect politics to the this kind of grains, you will realize that uh, the military dictatorships in Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay and Uruguay uh, boosted this kind of monoculture, exportation, intensive um, and racial, racialist, racism um, kind of agriculture. So I'm wondering about this exchanging uh, of ideologies are more complex than we often think about. I think you've made it very clear that soybean production in Brazil is far from simple. <laughs> this is my task. <laughs> it's your life goal. <laughs> if uh, if uh, things were very simple, I could be solve <laughs> that from from myself. <laughs> but uh, things are very complex, so I need a lot of help. I'm here to ask for you all for some help. I, th I, I found it enlightening to, to hear you make the links between uh, soybean production in Brazil and larger worldwide trends and also how the dictatorships within Latin America were so influential in increasing this ideology, maybe through various forms of propaganda. We haven't necessarily spoken about the means that they did it. But maybe that is a good question to ask. How how did they? So you say that the during times of authoritarianism, soybean production and certain crop cultures uh, improve, um, and I think improve should be clarified here as uh, are made more efficiently or can be made more profit of or whatever. Um, what methods did they use to do that? Uh... Soybean was first introduced in Latin America, South Sulphur Khan, uh, at the end of 19th century. And in the beginning, the first three decades, uh, 
of the 20th century, it was grown as a, a backyard plant here in Brazil, in Argentina as well, in Paraguay, because it's a very good plant uh, to fix nitrogen. And it was very important to as a, a complementary uh, crop. So uh, the first exportations of Brazil was only, I believe, in 1940s or 1950s, uh, uh, just a couple of tons uh, to Europe, uh, if I'm not wrong. After World War II, uh, we have the, the concept of great acceleration and the industrialization of uh, nature and this kind of... Uh, let's think on terms of uh, Cold War, where the Western part was uh, driven by the United States. And in this process, specific process of the soybean spread, uh, we can see the relationship between United States and, and these countries because uh, United States uh, developed a, a very important market and research system on soybeans in the 1920s. Uh, and after the World War II, they spread this uh, agri-systems to the global south and some countries in Asia, Africa, but mostly in Latin America uh, and after the, the military coups in Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, Chile, Uruguay, Bolivia uh, in 1950s and 60s and 70s uh, there was a lot of exchanges uh, between these Latin American farmers and scholars, researchers in United States institutions. I'm talking about 5,000 scholars and researchers and farmers who visit the United States. Uh, trying to understand this uh, Central Western uh, agribusiness system in Ohio, Illinois, and trying to bring this agribusiness uh, system to these countries. Uh, in, in Brazil, more specifically, soybean is connected to the uh, dictatorship because the the military government created a very important uh, research uh, uh, research company uh, which is Embrapa it's famous around the world uh, the Brazilian I I, I, I don't remember the <laughs> the English name but uh, Brazilian uh, uh, I, I, I <laughs> sorry and of course uh, at that moment they uh, the militarism also promoted the internal migration from south to the central west and north 
Uh, and who are the southern farmers? Uh, they are often uh, Italian and German descendants who migrated in the, at the turn of 19th to 20th century. They got some privileges. Of course, they suffered a lot with the uh, government abandonment. And, but the Caucasian, uh, as Alfred Crossman, uh, the historian, used to say, uh, there's a kind of uh, uh, interpretation that the Caucasian uh, are more uh, inclined to uh, technologies and this kind of uh, uh, interpretations that are very good for our politicians to, to, to think about that, oh, let's bring uh, Im white immigrants because we have a lot of uh, blacks and indigenous women and they are not inclined to civilization <laughs> so let's bring the civilized one <laughs> and of course these these germans and italians and polish and uh, french and spanish portuguese and some people from middle middle east uh, they had a lot of problems here in order to adapt to the climate and the weather and whatever. But they also had some privilege because they had uh, 10 to 20 years to pay for the land instead of, uh, for example, the mixed people here who were expropriated from their lands. And after half century, these poor Italians and German descendants, they became uh, the progressive farmers. And the government came back to them to invest uh, in these families because they would be the drivers of the agricultural modernization of Brazil. And then the, the Brazilian dictatorship brought some poor people from Northeast to Amazonia uh, in order to... Uh, uh, wow, that, there's a big forest there. Uh, we don't know what exactly we, we're going to do with the Amazonia. So let's bring the poor people there. And some of the civilized Southerns Let's bring here to this center west and north in order to uh, populate this uh, uh, demograph demographic emptiness. It's a very concept, a crazy concept we have here in Brazil. Uh, so it, in some, it's a combination of uh, agricultural research provided by the military government and the farmers uh, most considered as most skilled farmers uh, and the United States and big corporations influence on the seeds and machinery and the pesticides and the inputs to control the the environment. So this is, in, in my thesis, this is the component. 
Of course, during the 1970s, they were very interested in rice and beans because uh, after the oil crisis in 1973, there was a very problematic situation in terms of hungerness in Brazil. So these basic crops, crops were very important for to keep the balance, political balance in Brazil and avoid some revolts. Uh, but after the 1970s, uh, the exchange between the Brazilian currency and the dollar uh, make it very profitable to bring some some crops such as soybean. So it, uh, you have in Brazil a small uh, amount of soybean until the 1970s and after the expanding of agricultural frontier westward and north during the 1970s and 80s uh, it exploded so and soybean has been driving of course I, I, I've been sometimes focused on soybeans but it's a, a very complex chain because it, it it needs uh, grasses, uh, it needs uh, beyond the output inputs uh, because uh, you need to connect soybeans with cattle after you can't cultivate more soybean you put grasses and make that as a, a place for cattle um, so it's very connected. I often speak about soybean, but it's related to cattle expansion as well. So they use the soybean land in periods where they're not cultivating soybean for cattle to graze on grassland? Oh. Yeah, uh, you cultivate for some years. And the soil, of course, soil, of course, is not good enough for more uh, harvests. And then you put some grasses over the soil and will bring cattle. That's the, the last and most dangerous part of the agricultural frontier. Because what could you do after cattle? Because the soil will be totally depleted, and, and of course, uh, some some people will criticize me and say that technology will save us in the future, transforming the the grasses into a garden. But uh, uh, this is not the Latin American way. <laughs> it's also a, a technocratic uh, belief. Um, that is not grounded too often in reality. And you can also draw a lot of parallels with solutions for the climate crisis in general with that idea that in the future we'll have solutions to these problems now. And, and you ask the people behind these solutions, uh, when are they going to be here then? Oh, soon. It'll be fine. And then they continue to belong. Like nuclear energy is a good parallel with fusion technology it's like this is going to save our energy problem yeah. 
you are living a war in Europe uh, and people are saying uh, there's a problematic question regarding the Russian gas um, we are talking about energy we are uh, we are fighting in any part of the in every part of the world for water for oil and for these kinds of uh, uh, with very problematic situations uh, I, I, I I remind me that uh, you asked me about the climate change. Uh, I have been studying the Cerrados. Cerrados is the Brazilian savannas. It's a huge, vast territory in central Brazil. Uh, it's you can compare this territory to the size of combined uh, UK, uh, Germany, Spain and France. You have, yeah, it's a huge territory uh, and 61% of this territory is uh, grassland. And this is the, the central part of Brazil that uh, the Europe uh, environmentalists are forgetting to talk about uh, we often talk about Amazonia uh, but the Cerrados uh, is bringing a lot of uh, environmental problems because it was a kind of wasteland for more than one century people consider that uh, lands as wasteland but Except for the Green Revolution practitioners, because they uh, saw that topography very plain, very uh, uh, the weather is very defined because you have the season, uh, rain season, and the summer season. Uh, so it was very good to cultivate uh, pineapple and eucalyptus and of course, after all, soybeans and cattle. Uh, and we are now, uh, since 2014, eight years ago, uh, there was a very important uh, hydro crisis in the state of Sao Paulo, the most industrialized country, uh, state in the country. But uh, Sao Paulo is in the Atlantic forest. Uh, nothing to do to the Cerrado uh, but it, it was having a lot of consequences of the deforestation of the savanna and we in Brazil uh, let's think that some people are lying about environmental changes <laughs> but the other part who are very committed to understand the 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 climate changes they don't understand we as scientists we don't understand all the dynamics of the climate and the integration between the biological life zones and how if you change things in the north it will bring more consequences possibly to the south or maybe on paraguay on uh, Peru or 
other country because uh, environmental problems and crises has no borders and that's the the, the question the savanna is the cradle of brazilian waters we often think about amazonia but uh, there's a, a very uh, important ecology in these uh, these dry lands because uh, the the corky small trees uh, they have uh, roots sizing up to 18 meters so uh, we call it dwarf trees with giant roots so uh, unfortunately you probably won't see but it's a savanna vegetation uh, which uh, these these big big uh, roots connects the water the rainwater to the soil and now you often put it down burn these these trees and you are bringing uh, to replace it soybeans which has 30 centimeters of uh, roots so it don't connect the the rainwater to the soils and these uh, subterranean waters are the of uh, as i told you the cradle of the brazilian waters because uh, five of the most important basins in brazil uh, are connected to these savannas uh, so this is very very uh, very problematic situation it's fasc fascinating to hear the, how it's all linked yeah and the problem is the the uh, the problematic situations is subterranean we can't see we can't see the damage we are making and that that's a good uh, analogy for the rest of the climate crisis i think a lot of the time it's we we have an action and we don't see the consequences so don't appreciate them so i think it's a really interesting point I think also that is all we've got time for. Um, but it's it's been really it's been really really interesting. And thank you so much for for sharing all of this knowledge. I feel like I've been on a cultural, historical, philosophical journey of soy bean production in Brazil, and I have learnt way more than I was expecting to. Uh, not that that sounds like my expectations were low. It was it was more that you've you've outlined the topic in such a way that I didn't think was possible and I am grateful for that thank you very much um would you like to plug anything so we've talked about your observatory project is there anything else you would like to mention that you're working on now sure I have a lot of friends here uh, at the Universidade Federal da Fronteira Sul I'd like to thank them uh, such as Antonio Inácio Andrioli, who is a very uh, close friend and uh, smart guy who is thinking about uh, these ecological and social problems related to soybean. Uh, three years ago, he was awarded to the Bavarian uh, 
price of uh, protect, uh, environmental protection in Munich, uh, Germany. Uh, we have a very good laboratory on environmental history here uh, with my friend Samira Moreto and Marlon Brandt. We are close friends, we are working together. Uh, I'd like to mention the guy who gave me the idea of researching about Soybean, who is my close friend, Jo Klanovics. And I would like to thank you to Claudio Di Maggio, uh, Di Maio, who is an Italian, Italian friend who is writing, is uh, supporting uh, and inviting me to participate uh, in the European world uh, with my ideas. Uh, of course, we are uh, support from important Brazilian uh, institutions. I would like to mention the CNPQ, the Brazilian Council Council of uh, Brazilian uh, Council of uh, Research Development, <laughs> and the FAPESC, which is my my state uh, Santa Catarina uh, research uh, institution. Uh, I would like to, to just say a couple of words that uh, next, year, next year we are publishing a book on the age of soybean uh, and we got a lot of uh, very interesting researchers, scholars from around the world, from the United States, from Argentina, from Brazil, from uh, Sweden, from Italy, from Lesotho, from <laughs> uh, India, and a lot of countries uh, who came together very kindly to collaborate to discuss this very important topic. So, finally, I would like to invite uh, you and your project and every one of the of those who are possibly will listen this podcast to join us. I promise you we will have a web page in a few months and you probably keep on touch uh, by the website or by email or uh, a smoke sign or something similar, a bottle <laughs> uh, messaging a bottle or something similar <laughs> I'll send my pigeon yeah anyway uh, we we like we enjoy to collaborate anytime you need we are here ready to try to exchange I'm really trying to support a, a narrative on history of soybeans not based on numbers and statistics because I would like to make things more real to the Europeans and to the worldwide inhabitants who are interested in these uh, very dramatic narratives we are living in. Thank you so much. I'm here. We are all here. And please look to Latin America in order to try to solve some just a small part of our problems first of all uh, get out Bolsonaro and 
leave us here and please the hag uh, uh, I, I hope the, the he would be uh, in prison in a, f a couple of years uh, probably <laughs> That's something we can all hope for, yeah. And we uh, we managed to speak about soybean production and the historical and cultural context in Brazil for for a, a decent time, and not mention Bolsonaro. I think that's quite impressive uh, in a way. Next time uh, I can Next mention time. him because you know it would be necessary to have at least more four hours to uh, <laughs> to start. <laughs> uh, a quick conversation on his uh, madness. <laughs> I, I I think we could talk for weeks about the madness of Jair Bolsonaro. Yeah, and if you ever want to talk about Boris as well, then we could have a nice chat. Let's do, <laughs> I can share my uh, <laughs> frustrations. But anyway, thank you very, very much for coming onto the show. I really appreciate it. And we all appreciate it here at Our Food, Our Future. Any details about Dr. Clayton will be in the notes for the episode and you can find that in the episode description. As a disclaimer, this was produced with the financial support of the European Union. It is Its contents are the sole responsibility of and do not necessarily reflect the views of the European Union. We've got a lot going on in Melanfolkelijk Samenwerk Oorus. We are a Danish NGO that works for a more just and sustainable world, collaborating with global partners worldwide as part of the ActionAid Alliance. Here in Aarhus, we have over 100 volunteers working together to run a not-for-profit cafe and campaign and educate in areas ranging from feminism and climate justice to anti-discrimination and economic inequality to queer issues and refugee rights. You can come down to Cafe Melon Folk every day but Sunday for amazing food, drinks and events in a cosy cafe run by our lovely volunteers. Everything is also vegan, which is great. You can also get involved with our events, activities and campaigns and even running the cafe as a volunteer yourself. So check out Instagram and Facebook to find out more information about the cafe and our campaigns by looking up Cafe Melon Folk or Melon Folk Luxembourg or We're following the links in the episode notes. And check out Podbean, YouTube and other podcast providers for more episodes, interviews and cool stuff. Details are in the episode description. Thank you everyone for listening and until next time.